Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. What do you think of when you see the word unignorable? Unignorable. What are some thoughts that just pop in your head? You go ahead and think it's, maybe say them to the person next to you. What is unignorable? Unless you're going to lean over and go, your breath. Um, that, that might be, maybe want to hold on to that one. Maybe a spouse is snoring. That could be unignorable. I thought earlier today about a dirty diaper. If there's a dirty diaper in your household, that could be unignorable. Uh, it's just thinking about our community. Driving around Conway, Arkansas, there is a panther climbing up the side of Donaghy Hall. It's supposed to be a bear, but it's definitely a panther. Um, so that thing's unignorable. Yeah, whatever it is, I'm sure some—it's it's art. Uh, there's that. There's a mural downtown, speaking of art, of a kid pretending to fly. That thing is unignorable. Uh, in my dreams, in my nightmares, in all sorts of levels, that thing is unignorable. There's a giant anchor. Uh, if you're going over, you're about to go into Toad Suck, about to cross the bridge, there's this giant anchor on the side of the road. That also is unignorable. Those are all tangible things, right? Things you can see or smell or touch or, or, or experience. What about, what about the non-tangible things in your life? Is there anything running through your mind, your heart, maybe your to-do list that is unignorable? Last Sunday, about a week ago, today, right? I, I couldn't go to sleep. I was up all night long. In my mind, I had developed these dad concerns uh, for my boys. They were going to start school the next day. And we've done this before, but for whatever reason, just with each of them, I had these unignorable concerns, these worries, these fears, all this stuff running through my head. I even began to cook up some ways in which I would make it better or prevent it, or if it happened, this is what I would do. And, and for each of them, it was completely different and completely different scenarios, but I just kept myself up all night long with these unignorable worries and concerns. And so I'm, I'm sort of asking, do you, ever, do you ever have that? Is that ever going on in your mind? Maybe good things where you just can't stop thinking about this great thing, that, that this guy that you ran into. It's a good feeling. It's unignorable. Or, or in your heart, this thing that you're passionate about, this, this uh, business that you're going to start. Or maybe it's on your to-do list, this one thing uh, that you're excited about, but it's also taking all of your time, and it's just consuming your whole life. It is unignorable, right? This bigger-than-life thing that just keeps pressing in from all the sides that will not leave you alone in your mind, your heart, and your soul. We're going to start a conversation today, a two-week, two-part conversation. We'll, we'll carry it on into next week in which we are talking about uh, this concept, a great church defined, a great church defined. And it's going to take two weeks to really kind of unpack that. And we thought this would be good. Normally, we would be in another series. We paused that series. Well, actually, we canceled the last two as far as preaching. You're going to continue them on in your small group. And we, we thought for a second, let's just look at defining what is a great church. As we launch an additional campus, 
uh, 15 to 20 miles up the road as we are now one church in two locations as our college students, our university students are back, as, as school gets back going, as it feels like we're getting back into the swing of life, we wondered, what are we doing? You know, what, what are we doing and how are we supposed to do it? And, and, and if we did it well, what would that look like? What is a great church defined? And so that's really what's coming in uh, the next two weeks. We're going to read the syllabus, all right? We're going to see what it is that we may get tested on later and, and kind of hold that up as this scale, this two-part scale of greatness, this two-part uh, markers of what a great church is. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked a question he was asked this simple question. He says, uh, the guy says to Jesus, he goes, what is the greatest command? What's the greatest rule? All the secular rules and civil rules and, and religious rules, of all of those, Jesus, what is the greatest? And, and Jesus gives back an answer. He, he responds with what I believe is the correct answer, not only um, just from my own observation, but because Jesus said it, so it is the correct answer. And when he does that, he ends up giving us this, this marker for greatness. Not only greatness in the individual Christian, but also for the Christian's collective, like a church. What Jesus says becomes this marker of what is great, the signature characteristic. So let's take some time looking at this unignorable rule or law and what it means for us. All right, before we do, let's, let's pray together. God, thank you for the time to gather, this moments of setting aside as we are super busy. So many things that we have to do at home, uh, in our professional lives, in our work lives, and family, in education. God, all these things we need to do, we need to set aside and just focus on you. And so God, thank you for that, a place to do that, a time to do that. I pray, God, that it's fruitful, that our minds are open to what the Word says, and that we change where we do not measure up. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Matthew 22, verse 34 says, When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. Not the Pharisees and the Sadducees, just the Pharisees. They came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked the question to test him. Asked the question to test Jesus. Teacher, which command or rule in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, Jesus says back to the expert, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second, Jesus says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Y'all have heard this text before, right? You've heard this story. Even if you're not involved in church or you're new to church, you've heard this kind of concept, this idea, love God and love people. We commonly call it the greatest command or the, the great commandment because of the way the question is opposed uh, to him in the next slide. It says, which of the laws is the greatest? And so you've got that greatest command. And then Pastor David's going to share about the great commission. All right, so we have these two greats, right? And the great commission in that text in the Bible, later on in Matthew, it never uses the word great. So I think somebody was being clever and cute here because you got the great command and like, oh, this will mark it real well. We'll call this one the great commission. And from that, we get this idea of greatness. And from that, we get the idea of what is a 
great church defined, right? You see the, the flow there? If these things are great and that's what we're supposed to be doing and if that's how we're supposed to be doing things, then that would obviously mark a great church. I read about the USA Women's Olympic Basketball Team. Any of y'all paying attention to that at all? Um, very few people, right? Uh, like the Olympics in general. Um, but uh, the women's basketball team apparently is amazing. They're apparently amazing. I read that they have won seven gold medals. They have won the Olympics seven times in a row. I was, I was, I was floored by that, just amazed at their greatness. So I went to look up their record, and it is true. They have won seven in a row. The one before that, they only got bronze. And the two before that, they got gold again. All right, so they are in Incredible. They do not lose games. They are 70 and 3 in Olympic play. They have no losses since 1992. This team is unbelievable. What we might call the greatest of all time, right? The GOATs. Uh, the USA women's basketball team is clearly the GOAT. And when we think of greatness, that's typically the realm that we would put it in, right? If I say great, you're thinking dominance. You're thinking world leaders. You're thinking nobody can mess with this. That is truly what is considered to be great. But here's the deal. That is not what we mean when we aspire to be a great church. So before we define what a great church is, what I want to say is what we are not trying to say. When we say we are trying to be a great church, we are not talking about dominance. We are not here trying to destroy the other churches in our town, all right? There's no pennant or title that we can raise if we, if we get bigger than the other churches. Greatness for us is not about more money or people or facilities or campuses. That's not our goal. That's not our care. That's not our concern. Here's one way that I would say it. We want to be marked by greatness, not the pursuit of greatness. We want to have great characteristics and not necessarily the idea of world dominance or domination. Not dominance, discipline. I want to make sure that this is clear because I truly think that we are not seeing the great command the way that Christ intended when we are thinking goats. We are not seeing what it is that he wanted us to see. So here's what's important. When we're looking at this text, these four or five, what is it, six verses? When we're looking at these six verses, we really hone in on the conversation and not so much the circumstances. If we were to look a little bit more at the circumstances, I think we could understand more of what it is that Jesus wants us as individuals, but also as a church to accomplish what it is that Jesus would call a great church. So check it out, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. Pharisees and Sadducees, we've got these two political groups that do not like each other and love taking jabs at each other. Does that sound familiar uh, to anybody else? These two groups, similar, but they just really don't like each other. And so everything that they do is about sticking it to the other one. It doesn't really matter about what they are supposed to be doing. What they really like doing is the Pharisees like sticking it to the Sadducees and the Sadducees like getting one up on the other ones. And so this two groups, the way that this story starts, the, the, the text that you're familiar with, love God and love people, the way that that starts and is set up is with two groups trying to get at the other one. That's really what's happening. And when the Pharisees heard that they silenced the Sadducees, when Jesus silenced the Sadducees, they came together and thought, oh, this is our chance. 
We're going to get Jesus, and in the process, we're going to show those Sadducees who's boss. And one of them, an expert of the law who was a Pharisee, asked a question to test him. Now this testing means to trip up or to trap him. But here's really where I kind of fall out on this when he says, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? This is a long-held debate, right? Pharisees and the Sadducees for hundreds of years have debated what is the greatest command in the law. And so they just asked this question to Jesus, and really, this really stuck in my mind all week. Here's the question that I had all week. How is this a trap? Like, what happens if Jesus answers this wrong, right? I mean, it's, it's a really lame trap, is what I'm trying to say here. This is a well-known historic debate. Jesus could have very easily, knowing what's going on because he's an adult, knowing that um, what's going on because he pays attention, he could have very easily just given them the answer that the Pharisees normally think, right? And then the Pharisees would have been like, ah, he's right. Or he could have given the answer that the Sadducees normally think, and they would have said, ah, he's one of those guys, you know? It's a lame trap. And here's really what's being exposed in this setup of the story What's very clear, what they were exposing was that their lives were off-center, out of touch, and missing the point because they were distracted by smaller things. Somehow they missed the most important thing because they were fighting about things that did not matter. They couldn't see the biggest thing because they were all over there worried about the small jabs that they were throwing at each other. They missed this all-important command because they were more worried about being right and the other person being wrong. They were involved in some sort of silly squabble that made them miss the greatest command. I'll tell you a little bit more about what Jesus calls the greatest command here in a minute, but uh, the short thing to keep in mind is they should have known. Everybody should have known the obvious answer to which is the greatest command. Furthermore, here's what's amazing to me. Even though they missed the greatest command, what's even more so shocking is that they missed the greatest person to ever live. Has it ever stuck with you, or have you ever thought a little bit about this, that an entire generation, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these people that walked around with Jesus saw him do the miracles, and they did not believe. They heard him preach, and they didn't seem to care. They saw him feed thousands. They saw him raise the paralytic and, uh, and uh, uh, make him able to walk. He, they saw him raise people from death to life, and they did not ever trust him. They did not follow him largely. Why? Because they had their nose stuck in smaller, insignificant fights that they thought were important, but in reality, they were not. Listen, God is doing some amazing things in and through Second Baptist Church. Just crazy things about lives being changed, individuals being changed, marriages being restored, people coming um, out of addictions and freed from the chains of sin. And I hope that we do not get tied up in something not being exactly how we prefer it or a word choice here or there or just an uneasiness with time marching on that one day we look back and realize we missed the most important thing in the room because we had our nose trained on a trail that leads to nothing. We are very prone to be worried about things that don't matter to the point that we miss the things that do matter. Before we ever get into the greatest and the most important of the commands, notice how they missed it 
because they were worried about things that didn't matter. They were worried about just sticking it to somebody else. So that's the circumstance. Let's look at the command or the conversation. Verse 37, he said to them, he said to him, Jesus says to the expert, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important command. See, that's key there. Jesus wasn't talking about the goat either. He wasn't talking about dominance. He was talking about that which is of most importance. The biggest thing in the room, the biggest thing in your heart and your soul and your mind. That's what Jesus is trying to get at here. And listen, we love this kind of teaching right here. We love it. I do. I, I think that maybe a lot of you do as well. I love stuff like this. It's real easy. Like, so you got your heart, your soul, your mind. It's a quote from Deuteronomy. It's a quote from also Leviticus in which it's an obvious quote that they would have quoted all the time. And it breaks down in a number of, sometimes you'll see strength. Sometimes you'll see um, heart, soul, mind, strength. You'll see all these different variables. But essentially what it does is it breaks this uh, following Jesus, following Yahweh into these little categories. And we love categories categories, right? We love those. They, they help us because we're like, okay, in my heart, I love Jesus because of this. You know, I'm passionate because in my mind, I love Jesus because I think these things and I believe these things. We, we like that sort of stuff. And then we'll go over here to my strength and we'll say, in my strength, I love Jesus because I'm doing these things. And so we love the little categories because they help us know what to do. We also love the categories because we like being like two out of three ain't bad, right? So I do some good things for Jesus, and, and I really kind of believe what he says, but, you know, uh, uh, my passions aren't really there. I'm more passionate about it. But, you know, hey, Jesus likes us anyways, you know. And so we love categories. We really love those categories. And when we read these categories, we think to ourselves, this is good. We love categories. Another thing that we love is sequence. We love the order of things. Uh, like one, one way to kind of understand it is, uh, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. So if like Romans 12, where I renew my mind, I, I, I got my doctrines all in line, I'm listening to the right podcast, I'm, I'm studying the right books, all this kind of stuff in my mind, my mind is right. And then sequence, it moves over to my heart that if my mind is right, my heart, my passions will be right. I'll be in love with God. I'll, I'll live out a passionate life that is oriented towards God. My worship will, will ascend to God. And so my mind is right. And then um, check. And then my, uh, you know, my heart, my passions are right. Check, check. And then we'll go over here to if your mind and your passions are right, then your actions will be right. That makes sense, right? If you love something, you're going to show that. You're going to live that out. So my actions, my strength, my to-do list is all right. Check, check, check. Ding! I'm a good Christian. We love categories and we love sequences because we love saying, ah, uh, two out of three ain't bad, or I got this far, I'll try harder next time. But what I want to point out to you, which I already have, just the way I formatted the slide, is the point is not categories. The point is all, all, all. He's not talking about like, eh, two out of three ain't bad. What he's talking about is you are to love the Lord your God with all of you. It's about all of you. That's what God demands. That's what God deserves. And from here, the next part is pretty simple, right? If you love God with all that you are, then it's just going to flow that you will love others. Love your neighbors, love other people, anyone, everyone, 
like you do yourself. The second is like it. If you have your Bible, if you have your Bible open, if it's digital or if it's print, underline the word second there. Underline the word second. It's important to the text, but it's also the name of our church. And so underline second right there. It's my favorite word. Every time I see it, I underline it in the Bible. I feel like Jesus is going second, you know, like that. I think he's doing that. Maybe not. I heard it said that you can love people without loving God, but you cannot love God without loving people. Let me say it again. You can love people without loving God, but you cannot love God without loving people. And one of the most encouraging things to me about our church is we live this out. All the time I see examples of this in the second family. I see people get up early and, and, and prep breakfast for the men's prayer gathering to show love. They're, they're not getting paid for that. They're, they're there to, to um, show love to the other guys and, and to grow as a church and, and as men. I see often we have groups of people that will get together and assemble a meal and put together a meal for somebody who is experiencing a funeral. You know, they've got a loved one that's passed and they will provide that meal for them. Why? Uh, to show love to these other people. We have folks in our church who will go into the strip clubs in our area and, and call those women out of the sex industry um, towards redemption and, and giving them a purpose in life. Why? To, to show love. This is being fleshed out. That there are people all over in our church. Our church consists of hundreds of people who love God and then they love other people. Notice that he says, love your neighbor as yourself. As yourself is not commanded there. It's assumed. Because that's just really the way we're all wired. We all do what is in our best interest. And so Jesus just uses that sort of base idea that you'll sacrifice for yourself. You'll do whatever it takes for yourself to be happy. Do that for other people. That's sort of the standard. That's the way in which it works out. And the real key, key here, and I don't want you to miss this phrase, because we tend to read it wrong. And I was joking earlier about the name of our church, but this, this phrase here really is important. The second is like it. It's just the same way that we read greatness. We read greatness in a Western sort of, um, a lot of us who are Americans, we read that in an American mentality. There's nothing wrong with that. That's just not the way that he was using it. That great there means of most importance. Second does not mean second in value. It doesn't mean that the next. It means of, uh, of the same importance. That this is the greatest and this is as well. The second is like it. It's important. You have to love people in order to love God. If you love people or if you love God, you will love people. This is the whole faith without works thing. Faith without works is not real faith. If you love God, you will love others and you will sacrifice for the stranger and for the person that is different than you are. That's what love is. Sacrifice. It's a choice to sacrifice for the good of other people. So in this vein, so in this thought process that Jesus says to a group of people that are missing it anyways, the most important, the biggest thing in the room, the thing of the most value is that you would love God and love other people. In that mindset, it's not hard to hear the good news of Jesus, right? We can hear what Jesus did, what he taught, and what is available to you. Sometimes people will accuse churches of being a bunch of people who pretend that they've got it all together, right? That they pretend that, uh, that they, they're all perfect. 
that they're all living this perfect life. And so if you're new with us and you're checking out church, maybe you're checking out church for the first time or you're just checking out this church uh, for the first or the second time, let me very definitively let you know this. Second Baptist people do not think we have it all together, all right? We know how messed up we are, all right? That's why we're all here together. We thought, we'll just get a bunch of messed up people together and see if we could, I don't know, turn the world upside down. That is a basic concept. Anybody who's a Christian that is pretending hypocritically like they've got it all figured out doesn't truly understand Christianity. One of the core ideas behind Christianity is I'm broken and I need somebody outside of me to fix me. And that person is Jesus. What we see in Jesus is that he obeyed the rule of the most importance. That it was the biggest thing in his mind, the biggest thing on his heart, the biggest thing in his actions was a love for God. And that was expressed in a love for people, a sacrificial love for other people. On the cross, Jesus' love for God the Father drove him to sacrifice himself for the good of other people. And we are beneficiaries of that. That when we accept the gift that Jesus has given us, we are, when we trust Jesus, we are made new, given a new heart and a love for God that we didn't have before. We are given a way about us. Um, an M.O., The way Christians act is how Jesus says they will know that you are mine when you love one another. The way that you love one another will let them know that you love me. If you will accept that, if you will trust Jesus, you can receive that love today. I heard heard about a Bible professor who said to his class, he says, "What what is the worst sin? What's the worst sin that you can do? And so he had a marker board there. Maybe you're thinking of thoughts yourself. Uh, He wrote them down on the board, and somebody said murder. All right, yeah, that's definitely, that's going to be up there, right? So you got murder, adultery. Somebody said that. What about lying? Seems seems kind of kindergarten, but definitely a bad one, right? So we can put lie up there. What is the worst one? He lovingly pushed back and said, listen, if the greatest rule, if the most important thing is to love God and love people, then failure to do so would be the the greatest sin, the greatest shortcoming of God's standard. The failure to love God with all we are, above all that we can have, would be the greatest of all shortcomings. So here's the deal. I'm not going to ask you. I'm not standing here this morning in the 8 now or in the 11. I'm not going to ask you, who in here loves God? Because everyone's going to say that you do, all right? And that's good. You should, right? I'm not going to ask you who loves God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Everybody's going to raise their hand, or you're going to say something to the effect of, well, like most of the time, or I try real hard at it. So I'm not asking you that, because the way that we will know, the way that you will know, when you look in the mirror and ask yourself, do I, do I truly love God with everything that I am? The way that you will know that you are telling the truth is whether or not you love God people sacrificially for their good and his glory. I wrote down some ideas. This is not exhaustive. You could make your own list. In fact, I would encourage you to. Here's some things that are on my heart as far as like, wouldn't it be better if we did these things, right? Love people this way. Like first one is don't assume the worst. Don't assume other people's motives if you don't know what their motive is. 
Just don't assume it. Grant some grace. Give the benefit of a doubt. Get out, uh, go out of your way for other people. Uh, like friends and family, yeah, but also like strangers and people you don't even know. Go out of your way to be kind and gracious and generous to other people. Don't give up on each other. I got to tell you, this is my, this is my flaw. Like my one little flaw that I have, my one problem. I am a runner. I'm a runner. When things get hard, my first inclination is to bail. I got to go. If it's a relationship, if it's a job, if it's a challenge, my first inclination, I got to get out of this. But that's not loving. You got to stay. You got to stay. Don't give up. So what do I do now? When I feel like running, I like, I go for a run. (laughs) All right. Kind of doing it, but I'm going to stay. All right. So don't give up. Don't bail on your church. Don't bail on your friends. Don't bail on your small groups. Don't bail on your relationships. Don't bail. Stick in this thing for love, for, for truth. Here's another one. If you feel gratitude or appreciation, then say it. How often do you think, man, I, I, I really appreciate them doing that, but it, it'll be weird if I say, bro, that was nice. I mean, like, I'm sure it'd be weird if you said anything I say, but you know, man, I love you. Or so, I don't know. You know, there's weirdnesses. I get it, especially at different ages and all that kind of stuff. But if you feel appreciation towards something or gratitude, then say it. Show it. Text it. I appreciate what you did. It made a difference. It helped. That small thing you did was a big deal to me. Say something like that. And lastly, tell them about Jesus. The most loving thing you can do to other people is to have gospel conversations. Tell somebody about the love that God has for them. How unloving is it for someone to live and die and to know you but to never know about Jesus? As a church, as a church marked by the great command, I hope that we are marked by this. The most important thing for us would be to love God and to love people. We won't spend time, listen to me, we won't spend time fighting about things that are settled, nor things that will never be settled. We won't waste our time on our own comfort and our own preferences and our own desires if they do not reflect the heart of Scripture and a love for God and for others. We will do what it takes to love other people. That's what a great church is marked by. A true love for God and love for other people. Some of you may know that I am on the hunt for a Pegasus. I'm looking for a Pegasus for my office. And, um, and some people think that's super weird. It's a Y'all know what a Pegasus is, right? It's it's Greek mythology, and it's a flying horse. And so, rightfully so, some people would be like, uh, why does our Baptist pastor want a Greek mythology in his office, right? That sounds weird. That's like when people thought my tattoo was a dream catcher. That's also weird and not what my tattoo is, all right? And so, I, I get that. It's like weird. You don't know what it is. But here's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for Greek mythology. I'm looking for that. Well, not that big, all right? That's, that's the original. But that's what I'm looking for. This red flying horse has nothing to do with Greek mythology. Here's what it has to do with. In 1934, a company called Magnolia Oil in Dallas, Texas, put a red glowing Pegasus on the top of Dallas's first skyscraper, the Magnolia Building, right? They put it up there, and it was the tallest building 
forever. And so they put their logo up there on the top of that building. And through the years, nearly 100 years, that red Pegasus has stood over Dallas as it expands, as it grows, as it gets strong, and all those sort of things. It is a symbol for Dallas. If you're driving around downtown Dallas, the street signs have a Pegasus on them. There are statues at high schools with Pegasus on them. There are bars and restaurants and clothing lines all named after the Pegasus. That thing is a big deal. In 1999, there were structural damages to the, the, the Magnolia building, and so they removed it, but only for a year because the city gathered $600,000 to put another one up there because it is a big deal. It's a symbol of Dallas. It's a symbol of strength or whatever, you know, all the stuff that people imagine being amazing about, and I thought it was cool. I think it's really cool. This one right here is the original. It's not up on the Magnolia anymore. Uh, the, uh, the developer for the Omni Hotel, he wanted it, but they took down the original 1999. It wasn't, they could not find it until 2015. They could not find the original. They thought it was in the farmer's market. It wasn't. They thought it was maybe over at Fair Park. It wasn't. They eventually found it in a shed near White Rock Lake with bullet holes in it. Nobody knows where the bullet holes come from. I do. We're Texans, and we like shooting at shiny things. And so this, and this thing was up on a building in the middle of, so I'm, like, it's not even surprising to me that it had bullet holes. Yeah, people shot it. And so they repaired it, and now it's sitting outside the Omni. So you can go over there and stand next to the Omni. Since 1934, nearly 32 buildings are now much taller, two, three times taller than the original Magnolia tower. This was the original skyscraper in Dallas, the first one. There's now 32 that just dwarf it. But when they put that Pegasus up on that building, they said that you could see it for 75 miles, clear as day. You could see that Pegasus. The legend says that pilots in Waco, when they were taken off and they were landing, could see it all the way down in Waco. It's not the biggest thing. It's not the most impressive thing anymore. All of Dallas is lit up and taller than that building right now, but that statue, that Pegasus dominates the, la the landscape. One red flying horse dominates Dallas. It is the biggest thing in the Big D, not because of its size, but because of what it means. For our church, that is what I hope. I hope that the great command, a very simple, small phrase, to love God and to love other people will mark us, that we will not be distracted, and that by this simple, important thought, we will have it as the biggest thing in our mind and in our hearts and our actions in all of us. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.